Well, good morning. I'm in uh, Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to be going. So if you turn there, I wanted to give a quick uh, plug, if you will, for Wednesday night. So last Wednesday, as Aaron talked about, was full of food and people and the fellowship was enjoyable. Um, the teaching was a little bit of an overview. And this week, um, I believe, will be, if you're able to attend, uh, one of the most valuable times to hear about particularly our position in Christ and what that means. And I believe an understanding of what I'll teach on Wednesday uh, is key to not only just comfort and peace, but actually joy and growth in your salvation. And so uh, it is for assurance of your salvation. It is to understand the depth of salvation, understand what happens when you don't believe particular things about your salvation and how that leads us down paths that are not good. Uh, so I hope you will come and be able to be there. It'll be, a, it'll be an awesome time. So uh, we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 2 and be 15 to the end. As I've said, we've had a lot of sermons in these three chapters. And then when we get to uh, past chapter 3, it'll be Genesis 4, Genesis 5, Genesis 6, and there'll be uh, sermons per chapter to go much faster. But this is important for us to spend time here. Verse 15 is where I'll begin. And it says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds and to the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, This is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. We're going to spend uh, some time uh, with this last part of Genesis 2, the pre-sin part of the Bible, if you will, talking about men and manhood and women and womanhood and marriage. And I'm going to talk about those separately because oftentimes I find that, that manhood and womanhood are only talked about in the context of marriage, and that is important to marriage, but there are those who are not married, and so it's important, whether it be young or old and not married, uh, to understand manhood and, and womanhood in their individual distinct context. So um, the question that we're going to tackle today, though, is the question I think I put on the first slide, is just, what is a man? And... There is a lot of confusion today about what makes a man a man. Probably more confusion than we've ever had in, uh, in our generation, for sure, perhaps in our history. Uh, if we're honest, though, I'm not really sure when, in the eyes of the world, I became a man. Um, there's lots of options. If being a man means being biologically male, then I've been a man for 41-plus years. Um, if becoming a man started when my dad gave me the talk, you know what the talk is, the birds and the bees, then I guess I've been a man for about 24-ish years. 
If being a man means becoming a legal adult that can vote and go to war and such wonderful things, then the government says I became a man at age 18. Some would say that you become a man when um, you become self-sufficient or you become selflessly committed. So perhaps it's when I got a job, perhaps it's when I got married. If that's the case, then I've been a man for 20 plus years. Others will tell you that you aren't a man until you have children. So maybe I've only been a man for 14 years. Yeah, shaving. I started that at age five. But if being a man, if being a man means being grown up, and if being grown up means you stop hoping for toys at Christmas, adoring all things Star Wars, or eating too much bacon, I'm never ever going to be a man. But as it is, I have three sons, Fisher and uh, Landon and Hudson, at different ages, from 14 to age 4. And it's been enjoyable and incredible to watch uh, their God-given mannishness manifest itself in different ways at different ages. Um, Encouraging uh, my warrior sons to be men has been a very different experience than teaching my princess warrior daughters. Yes, I think it's important to put warrior in there, especially when you have three brothers. My princess warrior daughters, it's been different teaching them what to look for in a man. Both are very important. And I've learned, as you probably know as well, it's becoming increasingly difficult um, to raise the next generation in this day and age when the distinctions between men and women are becoming uh, increasingly blurred in ways that perhaps we never imagined that they would be. When gender isn't being completely redefined, which is where we find ourselves, we still have uh, our culture and our world giving very perverted views or pictures, portrayals of manhood through popular culture. They're very confusing and they're just strange. Some portraits are of men as lazy, buffoon, junior high humor men who are more like children than they are adults. You have a picture of kind of a Rambo-ish, manimal, roid-filled Chuck Norris wannabe who proves he's a man through conquest and adventure. And then you have uh, a more recent push towards a very fashion-sensitive metro lumbersexual, who has no problem working the perfume counter as long as he's sporting a beard. They're strange, but they're pervasive. And then the church, in order to combat that, comes up with their own versions, different portraits of manhood. And some are good, some are quite bad seems that the church has done a fine job in different ways of calling men to be William Wallace and to encourage men to reveal their father wounds. But most have, I think, done a poor job at teaching just good old-fashioned biblical manhood. And they are either completely silent about it or they teach some evangelical version of hypermanliness where it's Jesus plus shooting guns and hiking mountains and drinking beer and helping your wife submit. 
just as messed up. And it's not to say that there's nothing, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with some of those things in and of themselves, but I think the pictures that we're getting often fail to uphold just the bedrock truths of Scripture on which manhood is built. And so as a result, um, I think if you put the next slide up, this is what you have. You have most men in the church and outside the church striving, well, actually it's not striving, just living like the first Adam from Eden who ate from a tree when God has empowered and called us to live like the second Adam who died on a tree. I don't know if you've heard the phrase second Adam, but we'll talk about that often today. Because we need to restore a very biblical definition of manhood that leads us to live and to love like Jesus, who gives us more than just a picture of manhood. Now, I don't want you ladies to check out. Next week we're talking about biblical womanhood. Better be there. Okay? Today I'm going to speak directly to the men, and I want to give a little bit of warning to those ladies, first, who are not married, whether you be young or old. Some of you need to learn what to look for in a future husband, and I pray you're able to look at your dads or the men in your life and to see a good example. But if not, Scripture's a good place to start. Or, for those of you who may see, I don't know if I'm going to get married again, there are probably those in your care, particularly younger ladies, who need you to teach them what it means to look for a biblical man, for what a biblical man is. And for those ladies who are married, I pray that you won't sit in your chairs and jab your husband the entire time, either in your mind or in real life. And when you're leaving, please do not, the moment you get in your car, say, yeah, you hear what he said? Or when you get home, if your husband's not here, and think, you really need to download this sermon. It was really good. What's it about? Oh, just listen. I don't want you to ruin what I hope God initiates in the hearts of men today. And what a man really needs, wives in particular, is an ally and a cheerleader, not an opponent and a critic. What your man, your husband needs is to know that no matter what, even if the world tells him he's worthless, even if he thinks he's worthless, even if he fails and falls flat in his face, that no matter what, you're for him. You're with him. You believe in him. That doesn't mean you never speak hard truth. We'll talk about that next week. But it does mean that you are his primary encourager, so please be that. It's important as we look at Genesis 2 to understand what God created good in terms of manhood so that we can understand what is bad about manhood today and how, I believe, Jesus can make it good again. In Genesis 2, verse 15, it gives us a picture. It says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but don't eat this one or you're going to die. That's my version. There are four things I think you get, and so I'm going to give you a picture of the ideal, a picture of what manhood is supposed to be, a picture of God's design. Knowing that as we look at ourselves, men, and everyone else looks at the world, we don't see that lived out very well. But if you step back objectively, imagine a pre-sin world, what I'm going to explain to you is what God intended 
for men and what I believe he restores through Jesus Christ for men. First and foremost, men were created as creators. They were created as creators. Adam is created first, and he's placed as God's head over all of creation. He's representative over all creation. He's given authority to name things, which implies authority. I've always been curious to wonder what Adam actually named stuff. An elephant probably isn't an elephant. A monkey's probably not a monkey. It could be just, that could be it. Or not. There it is. It would be interesting to find out what the names are. But the fact that he's given the responsibility to name implies his authority and responsibility in leading. He, the man, has the primary responsibility to subdue the world that God created and to represent God and create some order out of the remaining chaos that's not a garden at this time. Men were created for work, and they were created for leadership. Men were designed, built, made to carry the mantle of leadership. When sin enters the world, Adam is the one God addresses. He comes looking for Adam. He says, Adam, what have you done? Adam, did you do what I told you not to? Adam, what is going on? As leaders, men were created to represent the Creator and to uphold His name and His Word in creation. Men were also designed to carry the burden of work. They were built to work. This is why in the New Testament, Paul can talk about men not providing and not working as worse than sinners. As workers, men were created for challenge and created for competition and innovation and exploration and construction. They were hardwired to be task-oriented creators and leaders and builders. And I want us to understand as I describe manhood, I'm not making a commentary on womanhood. Because just because I call men to be leaders doesn't say women aren't leaders or men to be teachers that women aren't teachers. I'm just talking about men right now. So don't let your flesh come up and go, oh, so men lead. Yes, men ought lead. But there are some awesome women leaders and awesome women teachers, and we will talk more about that next week. But as men who are task-oriented creators and builders and leaders, we see this naturally as they live out how they relate to one another, how they relate to the world of work, how they have relationships with those in their care, their wives and children and friends and community. And one of the primary characteristics that ought be there, that maybe isn't there as much, is that this is an active role, not just a reactive one. When God created, He created out of nothing. He moved first. He acted first. He was an initiator. Men are to be initiators. That's primary, one of the main characteristics of leadership. Men and masculinity is nurtured when they initiate. When they create things. When they recreate things with their physical bodies, with their minds, even spiritually. 
And through all this work and through all this leadership, men become stronger, and I believe the world becomes healthier, and those in his care more joyful and beautiful. Men were created as creators, but they are also created as caretakers. What does that mean? Well, as God's primary property manager, man was expected to protect all that God created. That included the plants and the animals and those in his care, which would be a future bride, perhaps, and children. He was called to protect all those things, to be a steward of those things. It is wrong for men to abuse creation, whatever that is, whatever that looks like, whether it be trees or people. You don't worship those things, but you care for those things and protect those things. The presence of men in the world The presence of men in a community, in a church, in a marriage, in a home, the presence of men was supposed to bring a sense of security, not fear of intimidation. See, whether they knew it or not, Adam and Eve, Satan had already fallen. And so creation at this point was vulnerable to attack before the fall. Adam had the responsibility to protect God's world from God's enemies. And we read in verse 25 that that men and women together were naked and unashamed. And and we see that it wasn't just responsibility to physically protect. There was an emotional protecting and a spiritual state that needed to be protected. I don't know, uh, for those who are husbands, uh, I don't know if you remember... Now, when you became a husband, I remember when I shifted from, um, I know this person, she's cute. Okay, I guess we're boyfriend and girlfriend, and now we're fiancé, and now we're husband and wife. And I was like, bam. I was so proud to be like, this is my wife, right? And it was really communicated, this is my wife, I'm her man, stay away, right? Like, I am her knight in shining armor, I am her bodyguard, I am her protector. I remember... A next level when I had kids, I remember at home when we brought Fisher home, our youngest home, for the first time, put him in a, you know, crib thing or like whatever it was, and I'm just like, I'm suddenly on like all radar. I want to know. I pay, I think the first night he was home, I paced the house and never slept. Just checking windows, okay, looking out the window, like I see headlights. I've got like an axe handle under my bed, just kind of like. Swinging that thing, just go, don't worry, honey, you sleep soundly. I got things under control, right? It's a sense of protection. It happens now, right? We go out, we got five kids, and and you're like, I'm just like sensing all the time because I am called to protect. But the interesting thing was, I didn't figure it out as much, though I should have when I was first married, but I really figured it out when I had a daughter of my responsibility to protect more than their bodies. My responsibility to protect their hearts. Because with my wife, I certainly saw it, but with a, a, a young daughter, you begin to see the, what you need to do protect her emotionally and spiritually in all other ways. And it was a different kind of protection that I had not considered, I think, prior to that time. I was the one that was supposed to protect her. I was the one that was called to defend her. 
God's enemies are still attacking. And God's enemies are to be man's enemies. Men were built for battle. And they were built for um, attack, but they were also built for defense, to protect truth, to protect justice, to protect the weak. Men should be leading the charge in protecting the unborn. Men should be leading the charge in protecting those who are unwanted. Men should be leading the charge in protecting those who are needy and unimportant in the eyes of the world. Men should be doing that. But largely what we see is women doing that. That's not how it ought to be. We love that women lead. We love that women care. Why do they care more than men? That's a problem. Men are also called to be, created to be cultivators. We do more than just create things. We do more than just protect the things that are created. We actually cultivate what is created. What does that even mean? I like the, the picture of cultivation. I like it that it's a C. And I really like alliteration. So you're only going to get C's because I like alliteration. But cultivating gives us a very awesome picture of the kinds of work that men are called to do besides just creating and, and caretaking. We weren't just supposed to work the garden. The Bible says that, that men were supposed to keep the garden. The garden was, I think, supposed to be kept and protected, but also cultivated to the point where it was becoming more beautiful in his character. See, the image of cultivation, just think about that, is one of intentional and careful nurturing. Men are called to cultivate the garden. Right? That's what it says. Cultivate the garden. And really, it's cultivate creation. And what we see later is that people were put into Adam's care as part of that creation to cultivate. Cultivating people emotionally and physically and spiritually. Doing the hard work to draw out beauty. If you view a person like a garden pulling the weeds Checking the soil. Ensuring the beauty of, of that thing or that person. Cultivation requires study. requires knowing. right? If you're a parent, you know what that's like. If you have more than one kid, you realize that they're very different. They learn differently. They act differently. Different things are funny to them. They like different things. They receive discipline, discipline differently. And so we have a responsibility as shepherds to know them, to study them, understand what they're like, what makes them tick, so that we can help them grow and we can make them more beautiful. Cultivating a person is like cultivating a garden. It takes careful and enduring dedication where you observe and you evaluate and you feed and you prune and you enjoy at times. Just watching and listening and loving what's happening. But the presence of men, just as there was the presence of men was supposed to bring security, the presence of men in all relationships, in the life of the church, in a community, at a job, your presence was designed by God to make things more fruitful and more beautiful if you're there. Your participation should make things more fruitful 
and more beautiful because of your understanding of your responsibility to cultivate. That's what Adam was made to be. And the fourth thing, men were created as coaches. Yes, it's a C, but it works well. And here's why. Right? Create and caretake and cultivate. We were called to be teachers. But the thing with teachers today is that implies um, a level of authority that um, people don't like. So I think it's better maybe to understand, although I think there's still some authority that God has given for us to embrace, uh, but considering it as player coaches. Now, a player coach is someone who coaches and plays the game, right? Adam, like all men, were created to receive knowledge, to understand and obtain wisdom, and then to teach and communicate that to others. That especially includes those closest to them in their care, but that includes anyone that they may be in contact with. To uphold the things of God, to uphold the Word of God. It must not be ignored and not overanalyzed, but God taught Adam a commandment. God taught Adam what he was to do. He taught him what was right. He taught him what was wrong. He taught him what was obedience. He taught him what disobedience. He taught him what the consequences were. The Scriptures don't reveal to us that God taught Eve directly. He may have, but that's left to our imaginations. No one is arguing that women should not learn on their own or be educated or teach. But the picture we have in Eden in terms of what men were responsible to do is first and foremost, they were responsible to know God's Word. To believe God's Word. To live God's Word. And then to teach God's Word. We see that very clearly. They were to know God's Word. They were to believe it and live it out so that they could teach it. And sometimes what they taught wouldn't require words if they were doing the other things. And what he was required to teach was more than just one command. It wasn't like Adam would fulfill his responsibility and say, oh, don't eat from the tree. All right, let's go work. There was much more given to him. And one of the key things that men are responsible to teach is the idea that there's a creator and we are creation. And we are a people dependent upon a God. And we're a people accountable to a God. And we're a people whose work is to be for the glory of God, for that is where our joy comes from. He was to teach her much more than just this one command. It was an entire attitude, worldview, if you will, that God was at the center of all things. Men were supposed to be the resident theologians of their homes. That is what our calling is to be. And you don't have to be a preacher to be that. Now, for all that God made man to be, creators and caretakers and cultivators and coaches and teachers, we know that's not how men are. We sit here, men, and we think, I stink. We look at our world and we see men doing all kinds of 
bad things, failing to lead as they ought. And that is because of what happened in Genesis 2. The serpent entered the garden, and the serpent tempted the woman to break God's command. And we will read and, and we'll study in the future the details of the temptation and how Satan is one that really doesn't have any new tricks. He attacks the same way with accusations and temptations, just as he did in the beginning. But we see what happens when those lies are believed. Genesis 3, 6 records the moment everything changed. And we should read this verse with careful eyes. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, so she's believing the lies that Satan has told when she saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. I'll read that again, fellas. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. It says Adam was with her and the question is, how long was he with her? Was he there the whole time? It implies that he is standing there, listening with her, listening as the serpent pours poisonous lies into his bride. You go, why didn't he say anything? He said nothing. See, before God created Eve, Adam had been commanded to never eat from the tree. And Adam, as I said, was expected to pass on this command to protect God's creation, to uphold God's name. But as Satan strikes up a conversation with Eve, who is in his care, he listens as she either misquotes Adam or misquotes God. Oh, we're not supposed to touch it. I don't remember reading that. Maybe that's not important. But then he continues to stand silently as Satan tells lies about God and His Word. Men, we need to understand something. One of the greatest sins, apart from unbelief, that men can commit is the sin of passivity. Where you passively allow that which is in your care to fall into sin. Now, it may fall into sin even if you're not passive. But the passivity that I believe is in some ways a silent giving of permission to fall into sin. Adam watched silently as she listened to Satan lies. He watched silently as she looked at the tree. He watched silently as she took the fruit. He watched silently as he ate it. He was silent the whole time. put up that slide, it's summarized this way. The first Adam did not lead, he was led. The first Adam did not protect, he deserted. The first Adam did not provide, he abdicated. The first Adam did not speak, he was silent. And that description is a pretty darn accurate description of all of us at some time and most men most of the time. I mean, the truth is, how often are 
many of the problems in homes and in communities and in the world a result of men just remaining silent and passive in their call and responsibility to lead. Now, Adam may have not known exactly what to say. Maybe he didn't know exactly what to do. But he could have done something. It's as if he didn't even try. And I say that not because, oh, in pride, Adam. (laughs) I say that because that's me. Man, that's you. Since Adam, every man has a tendency to do nothing when things get difficult, to remain silent, to watch as those in your care and the world itself falls into disarray. And I think it's fair to say, according to Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, that men are primarily responsible for the sin in this world. Not saying men caused all the brokenness of this world, but men are primarily responsible for it. And this is no more evident than as I read, or as I mentioned in Genesis 3, verses 8 and 9, that when God came after sin had come into the world, in verse 9 it says, The Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? What have you done? Adam, where are you? What have you done? And when Adam is confronted, which is where many of us will sit when we're confronted with the reality of our failed leadership, he doesn't repent. He doesn't take responsibility. In fact, we see what most men do. It's the woman! But he says more than that. The woman that you gave me, God... He blames a person. Ultimately, he blames God. Certainly not my fault, God. This situation was too hard, too messed up. Look what you allowed to happen. Something or someone outside of himself is where men go. And it's tempting to blame other things. I I blame other things, right? You blame other things. When we and our leadership has failed, it's easy to go, well, you wouldn't be so difficult. And that's because leading and cultivating and caretaking and do all the things that we were designed to do is hard because of the curse of sin. It's hard. It's hard to be a man. It's hard to be a husband. It's hard to be a dad. It's hard. Anyone says otherwise is lying. It's hard. I screw up daily. Maybe you don't, Mr. Perfect, but I do. Even our efforts to do what right, you know, do what's right, are broken because we're broken men shepherding broken people in broken ways. And it's only a matter of time before we start to listen to the lies of the enemy when we screw up too much. And what are those lies? Well, he'll accuse you. Well, you're just not a man. You put doubts in your mind. Well, you just don't have what it takes. Or it'll tell you half-truths like, well, she's just really a strong woman, or your situation's just really difficult. It's understandable that you wouldn't want to lead. Or it'll tell you lies like, obeying God's word and living out God's designs as difficult 
and countercultural and counterintuitive it might be, that's not going to lead to happiness. That's the ultimate lie, really, is that God's word and obeying God's word doesn't lead to happiness. And eventually, you listen to those lies long enough, you'll either do one or two things. In order to, as the accuser's coming, oh, I'm going to show you that's not true, you'll abuse your leadership and try to control everything. Or, maybe more often, you'll give up. And you'll just abandon your leadership altogether. I think being a man, being a husband, and being a dad, and being a community leader, if you will, is all hard because of sin, but it's really hard because we've forgotten one basic truth, and this may be stretching a little bit, but in verse 7 of Genesis 2, it reminds us of something that is very important. In verse 2, verse 7, in talking about the formation of man, it says this, and I talked about this, I think, a couple, a few weeks ago. So the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Men are different from animals in this way. They are built to commune with God. There's a spiritual component of man that does not exist in creation. We are made to commune with God, and our failure in that relationship has made all of the relationships difficult and all of the things difficult. What does that mean? It means that whatever practical, material, economic, whatever excuse you are using for your failure to lead, the answer isn't just pull up your bootstraps and go. The answer is to understand that your problem isn't external at all, it's internal. That your problem is a spiritual one, not a practical one. And you can't fix a spiritual problem on your own. I believe that God can restore you to being the man He's called you to be, but it's not going to be from your strength. God has called us and equipped us in Christ to be the man that you were designed to be. And when you are in Christ, even when you fail at doing that, He's like, I got you. And when you succeed, don't you dare say, boom, I got it. It's Jesus going, no, 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 no. That's me coming through you. God has revealed to us that through the gospel, if you take just one piece of the gospel, which the gospel is the good news of what God has done to redeem us and reconcile us back to God, and it was through the death life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just take the death of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the slaughtering and murdering of the Son of God. You want to know how bad and messed up you are? Your forgiveness and redemption required the blood of the Son of God. What the Gospel reveals to us is that in and of ourselves, we are too weak and too broken to actually fix ourselves. And our only hope is this. This is where the hope comes, guys, right? Like this picture of like, oh, this is ideal. This is where I'm at. Okay, let me give you some hope. The hope we have is to simply admit our insufficiencies and surrender ourselves to Christ. To admit we need rescue. To admit that what you're learning from the world or what you learn from your dad or what your flesh is telling you may not actually be right. 
It's not that strong men don't cry. No, strong men admit that they're weak and they're broken. And they need a Savior. And our only hope is to find that in Christ. And Jesus did much more than just teach us, all right, here's advice on how to be a man. Right? If that's what Jesus did, if he came to earth and goes, all right, here's how to be a man. Here's my example to do it. That was it. That just make me despair even more. What would Jesus do? I don't know, but I can't do it. It's pretty much what I'd get to. But that's not what the Bible tells us. This is an awesome verse, guys. Hold on to this one. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. 1 Corinthians 15 starts off with telling you the gospel, and then it applies the gospel all the way through. Verse 45 says this, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, first Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a living being a life-giving spirit. The first Adam, living being. The second Adam, or the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Jesus is a life-giving spirit. He doesn't just give us an example. He gives us a new life. If we surrender that old life to Him, He came and He redeemed us from our sin, from the guilt of of messing up, from the shame of what we've done in that mess up. He has come to redeem us and free us and empower us to lead. Where the first Adam failed to cultivate and to lead and protect and teach, the second Adam succeeds through the cross. And when you believe that Jesus died the death that you deserve for your failure, you are made new in the resurrection of His life. And through faith, you become a new person receiving the life that you did not earn, but also the energy and the power to live out a life like Christ. If you are in Christ, Christ is in you. Men, if you are in Christ, Christ is in you. In other words, I can tell you, you can do it! Because it's not you I'm talking to. It is in you to do it, but it's not you who's in you. It's Jesus in you. And the greater depth at which we behold how Jesus lived and how Jesus led and how Jesus loved, we shall. It is through Christ that we are empowered to initiate. Because there was one who initiated toward us. Jesus did not wait. He loved first. He did not wait for things to be clean. He entered into a broken, dirty, sinful world. He didn't wait for those in His care to be lovable. He loved when His bride was sinful in hope and expectation of affecting her loveliness. He didn't wait for people to respect Him. He loved and forgave those who hurt Him, believing that His kindness and His forgiveness would change their hearts. He didn't blame shift. He took responsibility for others' sin. I mean, think about it. When you have women calling out, I wish you would lead. I wish you'd be the spiritual leader of our home. If you surrender to Christ and allow Him to lead through you, who would not want to follow someone who is humble and forgiving and loving and unfailing and patient like Jesus? Through Christ, we are empowered to protect. Because there's one who has fought the battle for us. We don't need to fight these little battles against those we love. 
We are to fight the enemies of God to protect those in our care, to protect our community. Sure, you can protect your home with guns and knives and baseball bats, but we are called to protect the hearts of those in our care with the gospel. And the gospel isn't, I'm going to take a gun and blow away sin. That's not how Jesus dealt with sin. The gospel tells us the kind of ways to protect. The gospel shows us that Jesus became weak so that others could be strong. The gospel shows us that he gave everything away so others could be rich. The gospel says greatness is service. You all these men throwing around headship like it's going out of style. Head of the home, head of the home. You know, when Jesus dropped down his card, he dropped down and washed the feet of those he loved. That's greatness. That's leadership. That's protection. When you see Jesus laying down his life for those he loved, that's the kind of protection we're talking about. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, and every other way. Men, Jesus gave up everything to protect everyone he loved. And though he's the only one who deserved glory, he gave it all up so that others could be glorified. He looked past the difficulty of the cross at the joy set before him. And guess what that joy was? The beauty and blameless, without blemish, cleanliness of his people. Jesus wants us to die every day, fellas. Pick up our cross and experience the joy of what a life of protecting through sacrifice looks like. The last couple, through Christ, we are empowered to nurture He's called us to weed the garden that was given for your care. And we are to make it healthier and more lovely in every way. We are to shepherd it, to know it, to love it, to care for it, and to do this tirelessly without complaint as Jesus did. It is through the energy that he provides through his spirit. And though it's tempting to go, these weeds are not my fault who put them here. Christ in you reminds you that that's not how he said that to you. That's not how he loved you. That's not how he cultivated. He didn't come and go, oh, well, you sure messed up your life. He came and said, I'm going to jump in the middle of this mess that you created because I'm going to take responsibility for it and show you what it looks like to truly love and truly nurture somebody. Jesus willingly took a burden that his was not to bear so that he could present those he loved in all beauty and splendor. He removed our infinite burden, something he was not responsible for, so that we might burden our responsibility to work for him. And lastly, through Christ, we are empowered to teach. Men, please, don't be silent like Adam. And if you are an older man, don't think that your voice now is minimized because you've moved on. Moses didn't start teaching until he was 80. You still have a responsibility to speak. And it may not be to your wife or to your children, but it might be. It might be to your grandchildren. It might be to other men in this church. We need men to speak the truth of God, to uphold the name of God. And if that's going to happen, we need men to know God's Word. To know God's Word, to believe God's Word, to live out God's Word, and then teach God's Word. You will do a tremendous amount of teaching just by 
Let the others see you know it. I remember to this day my dad getting up in the morning and reading his Bible. I don't know what he was reading, but what I saw in him was that the Bible and God's will was important. Your children need to see that. Other men need to see that. And then they need to hear you speak. There are many of you that should be teaching God's word. I should not be the only teacher. I get to preach a lot, sure, but we have other opportunities to teach and in many other contexts. I pray that we'll be a people, men who are not known for being silent. You don't want to be known for being big mouths. We want to be known for speaking the word of God and upholding the word of God and declaring the word of God. That's the great commission. Go and make disciples and teach them to observe everything I've commanded. We're called to teach, man. That's not just a call for apostles and disciples and pastors and preachers. It's a call for the people of God. And one thing that convicts us or should convict us, especially you dads, but I would say many of you who should be fathers to others in here, even if they're not your children, if you read Proverbs 4, 5, 6, and 7, they all start the same way. Listen to your father's wisdom. Listen to your father's wisdom. I pray that we'll be a people who take that seriously. And if you don't know God's word now, please, men, those who do, find those men. The men who don't know, find them. And together we will grow. As I close, men, I don't want you to be discouraged I don't want you to be discouraged by your sin. I don't want you to be discouraged by your failure. I don't want you to listen to the lies of the enemy. I want you to be encouraged by the cross. Jesus already knows you were going to fail. When I do weddings, I always have this grand description of how Jesus loved the church and how husband is what you're supposed to do. And at the end I say, oh, by the way, you're going to totally fail. There's only one perfect husband, and that's Jesus. Only one perfect father. Only one perfect man. I want us to be encouraged by the cross and what Jesus has done for us, and that none of us, in and of ourselves, are are sufficient to fulfill God's calling to be a man. But together, I believe we can admonish one another and encourage one another towards the cross. We are weak. We are broken. We are sinful, but... We are also strong in Christ. We, when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we are loved by Jesus and we're able to love and lead in that love. God has called you, men, and he's equipped you, men, for those who are in Christ, to faithfully lead your family, to faithfully lead in this church, to faithfully lead in this community. That is the truth. Don't listen to the lies of the enemy. I'm not saying it's easy. But I'm saying you have everything it takes in you, and it's not actually you I'm talking about. This is not just a call to husbands and fathers, but to all men, young and old. And you can react a couple different ways. You can hear the words I've spoken today, and you can be prideful and try to do something yourself. Whatever. You can also be very despairing and do nothing. And my prayer is that we will all confess and let Jesus do everything. I will close with a verse out of Psalm 147. And it's a great reminder for me, especially when I'm discouraged by my efforts failing and trying to cultivate and care and do all the things that the Bible says I'm built to do. Rest in this verse. 
It's Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Man, I think you can do that. I think you can fear him and hope in his steadfast love and through that succeed in being the man God's called you to be. And as we come to the table, my prayer is that, man, you'll make one of two confessions. One is coming to the table admitting how you've fallen short. I've fallen short. I've not fulfilled everything that God has called me to do. I've not even desired it. I've tried to lean on my own strength. There's a number of things, but you recognize that you have not pursued God's design for manhood in your life. But for those who feel like, you know what? I feel like I'm, like I'm doing okay. I understand these things. I screw up. Your confession is that of gratitude. Your confession to say, I boast in what Jesus is doing in me because left alone, I am pretty messed up. And so whether we are confessing our brokenness or confessing what amounts to our successes, let us boast in the cross. So that when we do fail, we find forgiveness. And when we do succeed, we give thanks. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace and your great patience with us. We understand what we have been called to be as men. And yet we see very clearly where we have fallen short. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to do all the work that we couldn't do ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that we will not look at that work and and dismiss that work or ignore that work, but we will hold tightly to the cross as our source of power to live out what You've called us to be. Help us to be the leaders through Christ that You have called us to be. Help us to be the caretakers and the cultivators and the teachers that You want us to be. And when we fail, Lord, I pray You remind us of the forgiveness that we have. And when we succeed, I pray You will remind us to boast what Jesus is doing through us. Father, I pray you will build in this church men who love your word, and because they love your word, they love those that they are leading, and that we will see those who are in the care of these men become more beautiful and more glorious to your glory and for all of our joy. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand and